0: section six of a history of our own times volume one by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter three canada and lord durham part two the whole of this incident the fierce attack and the sudden pathetic expression of regret will serve well enough to illustrate the emotional uncontrolled character of lord durham he was one of the men who even when they are thoroughly in the right have often the unhappy art of seeming to put themselves completely in the wrong he was the most advanced of all the reformers in the reforming ministry of lord grey his plan of reform in eighteen twenty one proposed to give four hundred members to certain districts of town and country in which every householder should have a vote When Lord Grey had formed his reform ministry, Lord Durham sent for Lord John Russell and requested him to draw up a scheme of reform. A committee was formed on Lord Durham's suggestion, consisting of Sir James Graham, Lord Duncanan, Lord John Russell, and Lord Durham himself. Lord John Russell drew up a plan which he published long after with the alterations which Lord Durham had suggested and written in his own hand on the margin if lord durham had had his way the secret ballot would at that time have been included in the programme of the government and it was indeed understood that at one point of the discussions he had won over his colleagues to his opinion on that subject he was in a word the radical member of the cabinet with all the energy which became such a character with that magnificent indiscretion which had been attributed to a greater man edmund burke with all that courage of his opinions which in the frenchified phraseology of modern politics is so much talked of so rarely found and so little trusted or successful when it is found not long after lord durham was raised in the peerage and became an earl his influence over lord grey continued great but his differences of opinion with his former colleagues he had resigned his office became greater and greater every day more than once he had taken the public into his confidence in his characteristic and heedless way he was sent on a mission to russia perhaps to get him out of the way and afterwards he was made ambassador at the russian court in the interval between his mission and his formal appointment he had come back to england and performed a series of enterprises which in the homely and undignified language of american politics Would probably be called stumping the country. He was looked to with much hope by the more extreme liberals in the country and with corresponding dislike and dread by all who thought the country had gone far enough or much too far in the recent political changes. None of his opponents, however, denied his great ability. He was never deterred by conventional beliefs and habits from looking boldly into the very heart of a great political difficulty he was never afraid to propose what in times later than his have been called heroic remedies there was a general impression perhaps even among those who liked him least that he was a sort of unemployed caesar a man who only required a field large enough to develop great qualities in the ruling of men the difficulties in canada seemed to have come as if expressly to give him an opportunity of proving himself all that his friends declared him to be or of justifying forever the distrust of his enemies he went out to canada with the assurance of every one that his expedition would either make or mar a career if not a country lord durham went out to canada with the brightest hopes and prospects he took with him two of the men best qualified in england at that time to make his mission a success mr charles buller and mr edward gibbon wakefield he understood that he was going out as a dictator, and there can be no doubt that his expedition was regarded in this light by England and by the colonies. We have remarked that people looked on his mission as likely to make or mar a career if not a country. What it did, however, was somewhat different from that which anyone expected. Lord Durham found out a new alternative. He made a country, and he marred a career he is distinctly the founder of the system which has since worked with such gratifying success in canada he is the founder even of the principle which allowed the quiet development of the provinces into a confederation with neighbouring colonies under the name of the dominion of canada but the singular quality which in home politics had helped to mar so much of lord durham's personal career was in full work during his visit to canada it would not be easy to find in modern political history so curious an example of splendid and lasting success combined with all the appearance of utter and disastrous failure the mission of lord durham saved canada it ruined lord durham at the moment it seemed to superficial observers to have been as injurious to the colony as to the man Lord Durham arrived in Quebec at the end of May 1838. He at once issued a proclamation in style like that of a dictator. It was not in any way unworthy of the occasion which especially called for the intervention of a brave and enlightened dictatorship. He declared that he would unsparingly punish any who violated the laws... But he frankly invited the cooperation of the colonies to form a new system of government really suited to their wants and to the altering conditions of civilization. Unfortunately, he had hardly entered on his work of dictatorship when he found that he was no longer a dictator. In the passing of the Canada Bill through Parliament, the powers which he understood were to be conferred upon him had been considerably reduced. Lord Durham went to work, however as if he were still invested with absolute authority over all the laws and conditions of the colony a very caesar laying down the lines for the future government of a province could hardly have been more boldly arbitrary let it be said also that lord durham's arbitrariness was for the most part healthy in effect and just in spirit but it gave an immense opportunity of attack on himself and on the government to the enemies of both at home lord durham had hardly begun his work of reconstruction when his recall was clamoured for by vehement voices in parliament lord durham began by issuing a series of ordinances intended to provide for the security of lower canada he proclaimed a very liberal amnesty to which however there were certain exceptions the leaders of the rebellious movement Papineau and others who had escaped from the colony were excluded from the amnesty So likewise were certain prisoners, who either had voluntarily confessed themselves guilty of high treason, or had been induced to make such an acknowledgment in the hope of obtaining a mitigated punishment. These, Lord Durham ordered to be transported to Bermuda, and for any of these or of the leaders who had escaped, who should return to the colony without permission, he proclaimed that they should be deemed guilty of high treason and condemned to suffer death. It needs no learned legal argument to prove that this was a proceeding not to be justified by any of the ordinary forms of law. Lord Durham had no power to transport anyone to Bermuda. He had no authority over Bermuda. He had no authority which he could delegate to the officials of Bermuda, enabling them to detain political prisoners. Nor had he any power to declare that persons who returned to the colony were to be liable to the punishment of death. It is not a capital offense by any of the laws of England for even a transported convict to break bounds and return to his home. All this was quite illegal, that is to say, was outside the limits of Lord Durham's legal authority. Lord Durham was well aware of the fact. He had not for a moment supposed that he was acting in accordance with ordinary English law. He was acting in the spirit of a dictator, at once bold and merciful, who is under the impression that he has been invested with extraordinary powers for the very reason that the crisis does not admit of the ordinary operations of law. For the decree of death to banished men returning without permission, he had indeed the precedent and authority of acts passed already by the colonial parliament itself. But Lord Durham did not care for any such authority. He found that he had on his hands a considerable number of prisoners whom it would be absurd to put on trial in lower canada with the usual forms of law it would have been absolutely impossible to get any unpacked jury to convict them they would have been triumphantly acquitted the authority of the crown would have been brought into greater contempt than ever so little faith had the colonists in the impartial working of the ordinary law in the governor's hands that the universal impression in lower canada was that lord durham would have the prisoners tried by a packed jury of his own officials convicted as a matter of course and executed out of hand it was with amazement people found that the new governor would not stoop to the infamy of packing a jury lord durham saw no better way out of the difficulty than to impose a sort of exile on those who admitted their connection with the rebellion and to prevent by the threat of a severe penalty the return of those who had already fled from the colony his amnesty measure was large and liberal but he did not see how he could allow prominent offenders to remain unrebuked in the colony and to attempt to bring them to trial would have been to secure for them not punishment but public honour another measure of lord durham's was likewise open to the charge of excessive use of power the act which appointed him prescribed that he should be advised by a council and that every ordinance of his should be signed by at least five of its members there was already a council in existence nominated by lord durham's predecessor sir j colburn a sort of provisional government put together to supply for the moment the place of the suspended political constitution this council lord durham set aside altogether and substituted for it one of his own making and composed chiefly of his secretaries and the members of his staff in truth This was but a part of the policy which he had marked out for himself. He was resolved to play the game which he honestly believed he could play better than anyone else. He had in his mind, partly from the inspiration of the gifted and well-instructed men who accompanied and advised him, a plan which he was firmly convinced would be the salvation of the colony. Events have proved that he was right. His disposal of the prisoners was only a clearing of the decks for the great action of remodeling the colony. He did not allow a form of law to stand between him and his purpose. Indeed, as we have already said, he regarded himself as a dictator sent out to reconstruct a whole system in the best way he could. When he was accused of having gone beyond the law, he asked, with a scorn not wholly unreasonable, what are the constitutional principles remaining in force where the whole constitution is suspended? What principle of the British Constitution holds good in a country where the people's money is taken from them without the people's consent, where representative government is annihilated, where martial law has been the law of the land, and where trial by jury exists only to defeat the ends of justice and to provoke the righteous scorn and indignation of the community End of Section Six.